in this episode of Influencers, Ancestry CEO, Deb Liu. Looking at your ancestry and your DNA, you realize that we are one human family. It's really important that you be able to, to have control over your privacy. Knowing that history, the resilience that you know our families had over many generations, is an important part of who we are. and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Deborah Liu, CEO of Ancestry.com, and also author of the new book, Take Back Your Power, 10 New Rules for Women at Work. Deb, nice to see you. Thanks for inviting me here. So why don't we start off by you talking a little bit about Ancestry.com. Tell us what the company does. Ancestry is a leader in family history and you know um, DNA genomics, and we help you find your ancestry through records, through your DNA, through matches. And it's been a company that's been around for 35 years, and we've been helping people tell their family story during that time. There are a number of competitors, uh, most prominently perhaps 23andMe. So how are you guys different? Well, I think that their product is is actually really incredible and in that they're focused, but they're mostly focused on health. So really kind of discovering a little bit more about your health. We're really focused on focusing on your ancestry, you know, where you're from, where your family is from, and, you know, also matching you to the ecosystem of DNA of other people in, you know, who built their family trees. So you can actually discover what you have in common, whether you have kind of a great grandparent that you share with somebody that you might even know. Want to talk more about your company, but first also want to dive into your book a little bit. Congratulations, just came out within the past month or last month, I guess, actually. Um, tell us about why you decided to write this book, Deb. I just think, you know, over the last eight years, I've actually coached and mentored over a thousand women. I have an open door policy. People can call me and kind of do one call with each person. And I realized there was a lot of themes that were very, very similar. People running into the same circumstances. And I can't continue to scale this. You know, I can talk to another thousand women over the next eight years, or I could write a book and actually hopefully amplify the message of, hey, when you get stuck, here's what you should do. Here's how you should shape your career path, how you find your voice, how to find allies. A lot of those things, which I give advice on one-on-one, I was able to compile into a book so that I can actually share that message with more people. It's hard to believe, or at least it's hard for me to believe, but you talk about growing up being an introvert. You don't seem like an introvert anymore. So so what happened? Did you have to make yourself change to be more extroverted or is that just growing up? What do you think? Well, I've been reading the book Quiet from Susan Cain and introverts, you know, and the power of introverts. And I grew up an extreme introvert. And in fact, I grew up in a small town in the South looking as I do, being really different and people telling me to go back to where I came from. And you know, for me, just being quiet and being unassuming actually helped me a ton. I was already naturally shy, and that just made me kind of clam up. And And I realized that it just wasn't working when I got to the workforce. Because when you're asking other people to draw ideas out of you, when you're an introvert, you're actually holding back something, which is your ideas, your wisdom, your insight. And so I forced myself to learn the skill of actually learning to speak up. And, you know, for me, I treat it like a skill like any other you know, just like learning a foreign language. It was like a foreign language to me, actually. It was so foreign to how I grew up, how I learned to speak. And yet at the same time, really finding my voice was really powerful and actually getting to me to where I am today. I mean, you could have taken another path, which is just 
remained an introvert and or not achieved the way you've achieved. And I'm just wondering, have you ever thought about what drove you to actually go out and do what you've done in the world as opposed to just sort of not taking those steps? Well, I think that you have a choice in life, right? There are things that you can't control and things you can. And I said, you know what? The things I can't control, like I'm going to take every advantage and, and understand what it takes to be a leader. And a lot of that coaching I got from my mentors, from my sponsors was you need to learn to speak up. You need to push for your ideas. You need, you're not, you're not doing anyone any favors by withholding your, your ideas and your thoughts. And so it took me a long time to get there. And, you know, I think we have a choice. We can either have a learning mindset and we can continuously say, you know what, what's going to help me grow? Or we can stay in our comfort zone. I worry that sometimes we just say, well, you know, this person's introverted, this person's extroverted, and therefore. And I said, as opposed to saying, I'm an introvert, and that's the end of the sentence. Why don't we say, I'm an introvert, but I can learn to speak up. I can share my ideas. And it's not a fixed thing. I still, at the end of the day, run out of words, as I tell my husband, who is an extrovert. However, I, you know, still, I just value the idea that we are always a lifelong learner, and we can always continue to grow and iterate and change for the better. You're not the first person, Deb, to write a book about women in the workplace and the um, challenges they face and ways to circumvent those challenges. Um, what do you think? Is there something different about your message and that will you have to share? You know, for me, I've read a lot of those books and I love the book Lean In, by the way. So Cheryl is my mentor and my sponsor. She actually wrote the forward to my book. And you know, it's funny, I am only where I am today because she gave me the lean in talk before the lean in talk was a thing and before, you know, she wrote that book. And she said, you know, don't leave before you leave. You, you should show up. You're between, you know, I was, had just had my second child. I was breastfeeding and she's like, you should join Facebook. You should get on the rocket ship. And she gave me the talk and I actually took that in the next 11 years, had an incredible experience at the last company I was at. And you know, I just think that each book tells a different point of view. I think with Lean In, it is it was an incredibly empowering book and it really transformed my life. For me, I really wanted to focus on the really practical tips of the day-to-day, -day, which is not just the inspiration of showing up, but how to do that on a very tactical basis. And, you know, my book is much more, the first chapter is really, here's the playing field you're on. And then the next nine chapters is, and given the system you have, here's the playbook to address it. And I went with something that was much more day-to-day. -day. Here's what you need to do. And it's because sometimes, you know, the it, it, there isn't enough detail of the guide. And so I really wrote the guide on, you know, here's what you should do when you show up to a meeting. You know, this is, and, and a lot of that was really kind of born from the idea of not just inspiring women to lean in, but actually telling them the details of how to make it happen through the stories of any women that I've interviewed. There's some people who say, um, that progress is just naggingly slow, um, that really women haven't made uh, much much progress, maybe particularly in Silicon Valley, maybe particularly in, in product and engineering roles, which that's your background. H how optimistic are you? And, you know, without being Pollyannish, like, oh, I'm, of course I'm optimistic. I mean, is change really, has change really occurred? And do you think it's really continuing to occur? Well, you know, I tell the story in the book of Lenore Blum, where 40, over 40 years ago, she and her friends wanted to bring more girls into STEM. They were at Berkeley. She was a math um, professor. And eventually she was actually, her contract wasn't renewed at Berkeley. She was almost fired from her next university. 
And it was just a time when women didn't get PhDs in math. And, and for 40 years, she and her, her friends created station, brought a million girls through to encourage them to become STEM, you know, study STEM in college. And when we went to the 40th anniversary dinner, she's like, I thought we would have made more progress at this point. But they had made tremendous progress in so many ways, and there was just still so far to go. And so I write this book from a place of hope, which is we are making progress. The next 40 years will be better than the last 40 years. Because I've had women math professors. I have worked with incredible women leaders in a time when 40 years ago, they didn't have that. They, there were no role models. And so I think in 40 years, it's going to be so much better. And I think all of us should believe that the arc of history is bending towards more, more opportunity you know, for everybody. And that's what I want. That said, I think we have work to do every single day. I wish I had a magic wand and said, the system will be fair tomorrow. But without that, how do we actually change our behavior and do the things that we need to do to it to help bring about the change that we want can men read your book tab and or what what can they do what can they draw from your experience or or what you have to say in your book so i've had a lot of men read the book and what's really interesting is the feedback comes in kind of one of three forms first is a lot of people just didn't know and even women didn't know a lot of the statistics you know, start out the book, it's pretty heavily statistics oriented. And the reason is to show you, hey, look, you know, men are considered leaders if they're competent. Women are considered leaders, they have to be competent and warm. Is that fair? You know, no, there's a double standard. And yet at the same time, that's the reality. And by the way, other women expect that of women as well. Or, you know, things like for every 100 men who are promoted to management, you know, 86 women are. That is just the reality of where we are today. And I don't think people, these aren't salient points of view that people have or the stats that people have at the top of their head, but I think revealing that and saying, hey, if there are four candidates in a pool and one of them is a woman, she has zero probability of getting that job. And any individual woman or man would never have any idea that this happens because you don't see what the candidate pool looks like when you're on the other side. And so really just sharing some of these, sharing some of the data and then saying, hey, this is the system that we live in today. How can you be a great ally? So that's one, it's just knowing the stats. I think for a lot of men, just kind of seeing that on paper has been helpful. The second one is, I think a lot of men don't, don't hear the conversation that women have. So I recently did a book reading and it was like 90 women and maybe five men. And it was so interesting because the men afterwards came to me and said, we never hear about these challenges women talk about. And I said, it's because we don't spend our time at work talking about this, right? But we talked about breastfeeding and maternity leave and some of the challenges of, of being a working mother or, you know, being dismissed as not being the leader. And it was just kind of revealing for men to see it from that perspective. And I think the third is, you know, a lot of these tips are very universal, having a learning mindset, finding your voice, even for introverts, a lot of men, especially who are introverts or minorities have said that this was also very useful for them. And that's why I wrote it just for women. <laughs> and so I think it just depends on where you situate. But I hope that this will make everybody better allies, mentors, and sponsors with all the people around them, especially people where they don't see some of the challenges that the other folks that are around them face. You talked about Facebook. I want you to delve into that a little bit more for us, Deb. What did you take away from your time there? Maybe talk a little bit first I guess, about what specifically you did and then getting back to what you uh, garnered from that. Yeah, so I started out in, in a team on the payments team and eventually went, worked on payments and games. And then I worked on app install ads, the um, Facebook um, audience network, which is the ad network for mobile. 
And eventually I, I led uh, the development of what was called at the time Facebook Pay and now is MetaPay and Facebook Marketplace, which is the commerce experience used by over a billion people. And so during my 11 years there, I've worked on many products and owned many, many different things. And it was an incredible adventure. I think the thing I learned the most is that you know, a small group of people who really care about a product or a problem can solve so many things. And whether that's within a company or outside of a company, is that technology has the opportunity to connect a billion people to buy from their local community. You know, it has the opportunity to make it possible for small businesses to grow. And, and I think that that's the, the most important message of tech is that sometimes we hear a lot of criticism about tech. But think about what the opportunities that's created as well, that people can start companies and, and support their small businesses and make them more efficient every single day because of technology. Yeah, you help create Marketplace, right? I mean, which is, you know, an incredibly important part of that company. What, what is the culture like at Facebook? I mean, you talk about working with Cheryl and, and the you, you wrote about your interview with her and her putting in one role and then you having the idea, I guess, for marketplace essentially. And so what is it like? And, you know, with Bob Cox and Zuckerberg and all the rest of those people. Well, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of people see them as, you know, something like, you know, somebody you see on TV or somebody you read articles about, but, you know, it's just incredible how human and how kind, and, you know, these are people who are friends, you know, these are people we spend time with and, you know, really learned and built together with. And I think that, you know, a lot of times when, you know, you read a lot of articles, it's more, you know, it's talking about something that's, that's a specific issue and, and it kind of mentions someone's name, but instead, I think that, they're, you know, they're building something that's really important to the world, being able to connect people, to communicate, to grow businesses, to help people succeed and, and to create kind of more in the world. And that's what's really incredible. And that's why the mission is so important there. And finally, on Facebook, I mean, you talk about it as a, a place where that's building something incredible. The companies had had some problems. Um, I think even senior management would acknowledge that. What are the problems to your mind, Deb, and how systemic are they and how can they be fixed? Well, I think the problem in, in all technology, new technologies, is that, you know, just as every technology has ways that people exploit it, people use it for bad means, you know, every technology has faced this. And, you know, it wasn't, you know, phone scams are a real thing. And I remember, you know, we, we talk about, you know, a technology enabling so many things, and yet there's also opportunity for people to exploit and take advantage. And I think it's important that companies who work in these spaces work on, you know, how to work on regulation as well as, you know, protecting people from those things that happen. But those things are constantly evolving. If you actually look, like, for example, you know, Facebook has taken down more fake accounts than there are people in the world at this point, something like that. And so people are trying to exploit the, the ecosystems that they built because they are so powerful and really, you know, protecting people and protecting, you know, the, the way that we're, we're able to communicate is really important. And that's something which the company is very focused on. So how is it that you left Facebook and became the CEO of Ancestry.com? You know, I had um, talked to several companies about different roles and as a CEO. And and when I got the call about Ancestry, you know, I just, it felt 
really right. You know, telling your family story. I'm very close to my family, even though I grew up really far away from them. We were half the world away, you know, half the country away from most of my family. And so really, you know, capturing your family story, telling your family history is such an important part of my own life. And so I just, when it just felt really right when they called and, you know, I, I just knew that this was the opportunity for me because I think, you know, especially during COVID, we realized just how important our family was when we couldn't see them anymore, when we couldn't connect with them, when they were sick. And, you know, it's one of those things where it was a reminder that what we have in life is our health, our family, our friends, and those are more important than other things. And so, you know, this is a company that's really dedicated to that. It's really capturing your own family story, but to share with your own family and to have, you know, a, a history for your children and your grandchildren as well. Yeah, maybe expand on that a little bit, Deb. What really is the benefit of people learning about their ancestry? I mean, how does that help us as human beings? Well, I just think, you know, for example, during the Ukraine war, you see people go to a train station and they say, do you want to go to X country or Y country? You know, this will take you to X, you know, this country and this will take you to another country. And people are deciding the future of their world with a decision at a train station with all the things that they have. And so much of that was the history of how we, especially in America, a family, you know, a country of immigrants who decided to get on a boat and, you know, come to this country. And for my parents coming to America with almost nothing, they came to go to college. They had a few hundred dollars and a couple suitcases, and they built a life here, not knowing if they were ever going to make enough money to go home. And, you know, they started a life here and they didn't go home for a long time because they couldn't afford it. And at the time it wasn't like they could afford to call or, you know, and this changed the, the trajectory of their future generation. And so knowing that history, the resilience that, you know, our families had over many generations, it's an important part of who we are. And I think that that makes us more resilient as a society. I also think it's really important that we realize that we are more interrelated than we think. Looking at your ancestry and your DNA, you realize that we are one human family. And, you know, seeing the connections you have with people who don't necessarily look like you, but are part of, you know, who you are, that is an incredibly powerful message that I hope you know, people will see. Yeah, people are fascinated by this stuff. I saw this article in the paper just last week about people finding each other who looked a lot like each other. And then it turned out they were, in many cases, related, right? Yeah, the doppelganger article was incredible. Yeah. But it's amazing to find somebody who looks like you. And it turns out you share a lot of DNA. And so, you know, like you, it, you have such similarities. And it is such an incredible story that two strangers can meet and actually be in, in related through DNA and yet never know that. Right. Yeah. No, I love that. Tell us more about Ancestry.com in terms of uh, how many people work there and the business model. Yeah, we have about um, 1,500 employees and we really focused on... Um, really a lot of the focus is on the DNA business as well as the family history business and basically discovering your roots. And, you know, our business model is a subscription business. So we have a subscription where you kind of access our content records, you access other people's trees, and you're able to actually build out your family history. We also have the DNA business where you buy a kit and you do the, the sample test, and then you're able to discover, for example, you know, relatives, so matches 
you discover what countries you're from and what share of your DNA comes from what country. And then you also discover now we just launched parental inheritance from which parents you actually, so even if your parents have passed away, you can find out from your, you know, which parents you inherited your ancestry as well. And so it's a pretty fascinating uh, new, new product that we put out as well. My understanding is, is that in the past, Ancestry has faced criticism for working best for people of Western European descent. And what is Ancestry doing to be more inclusive um, to people of different heritages, Deb? Well, once I joined the company, we embarked on a project and, and kind of a strategy called Ancestry for All. And that is to make Ancestry more accessible to everybody. Part of it is we've had an incredible 35-year history. We have worked with governments. We have scanned documents. We have collected the best collection of you know, genealogy records, public records, archives in the world. And a lot of that happens to be our roots, right? We worked with a lot of Western European governments, for example, and that's where a lot of the best records come from, a lot of the ship records, things like that. And that's been incredible. But we have more work to do. We have expanded our collections recently to, you know, we, we put out the Freedmen's Bureau and the Freedmen Bank, which came out after the Civil War. We've also worked on a number of different initiatives to bring on records from other countries, such as Latin America and areas, you know, that we traditionally have not had as many records for. And we're diversifying our DNA to make sure that we're getting samples from other places so we can get more fidelity around different ethnic communities as well. And so we're getting better every day. We still have a long way to go, but I think that, you know, Everybody loves their family equally wherever you're from. And so how do we actually make our product more accessible? We are working on being able to do more storytelling. So if you don't have records, for example, and I didn't have a ton of records because my parents and my in-laws immigrated to the U.S., you know, now we can tell our own story. We can upload, you know, we recently launched the ability to upload and correct photos making it easier for those shoe boxes of photos you have to actually be digitized and share with your family. You know, being able to, to create sharing with your family within the product as well. So we have a lot of work that we've done to actually bring us to where we are, but we still have a, a journey that we need to go on together. So what mechanisms do you have to protect privacy? I think privacy is really incredibly important to us. You can do your DNA test and then you can also like delete the sample if that's something that you want or, you know, not match with other people. So we do make it possible for you, for you to actually protect your privacy in that way. But in other ways, like, you know, it's really important that you be able to, to have control over your privacy. So really, you know, you, you consent to this, to, to um, how we use the DNA. We also are ensure that we are encrypted so that, you know, people don't have access to match your DNA to your name and identity in a number of different checks and balances across our system. And then obviously security and, and privacy it, it go hand in hand. So obviously we make sure that, you know, we have really secure um, storage so that, you know, we do not actually accidentally or intentionally have somebody actually take out, get access to the DNA. What is the growth trajectory of the company like, Deb, and how do you measure that? Um, how uh, susceptible would you guys be to an economic downturn? How cyclical? How, what does exposure to the economy look like? Those types of things. Say like like all consumer products, this is you know an ongoing. You know we're really understanding the consumer economy, and you know we've continued to grow through COVID, and we're expecting to continue to you know really see people continue to see interest in this category. 
That said, we'll see how the economy goes. I think inflation is hitting everybody. And so that's important that we you know, keep that in mind as you know, discretionary income changes over time. But you know, this is something that people invest in, not just for the short term. You know, discovering your family history is a long-term experience and, and project. And we want to be able to power that for many years to come. Do you talk about uh, the number of users, the number your audience size? Well, we talk a little bit about the number of subscribers we have. You know, we have um, three three point eight million subscribers, and it's something that we do share. And you know, we're going to continue to iterate on that. We also want to make sure that we're offering you know new and new opportunities and new services over time as well. So we're going to continue to iterate on our product and make it available to as many people as possible. Yeah, what what ways could you grow outside of this specific area, though? I mean, what else could you guys get into potentially? Well, let's say like, for example, bringing more of your family members. So not just having one person be a subscriber, but, you know, engaging in social and community activities, building your family story together, sharing memories of your grandmother with your cousins, you know, those types of things, which is, you know, maybe one person subscribes, but multiple people are able to participate in the storytelling together. So that's some of the work that we're doing is actually to make this a family activity. We call it going from me to we which is you know, two thirds of people told us that the reason that they do family history is to share with their family. And so we wanna make that easier. And so a lot of the work we're doing is not just making the subscriber experience amazing, but also making it amazing for those who are consuming and actually collaborating on the product itself. Shifting gears here, Deb, you also, I believe, founded and run, correct me if I'm wrong, a nonprofit, Women in Product, Correct me if I'm wrong and then tell me about it. Yeah, so I founded um, Women in Product with a number of women, actually, on a whim, actually. We were at dinner. We've been hosting dinners for four years with women across Silicon Valley because there were so many, so few women in product management at the time. And, you know, one of the things we did was create this community. Now it's 30,000 members strong. And it is a nonprofit really dedicated to helping women find new roles in product, to grow their careers, to be able to continue to, you know, product management is, is important in that it decides exactly what products we use as a society. You know, these are the people who choose the roadmaps, the features, the priorities of, of what gets built and, and the apps that you have and the experiences that you use. And so that is a really important uh, function. And for a long time, there were a lot of women in the function, and then it suddenly dried up. And nobody knew why. And it turns out in 2004, Google required a computer science degree to enter product management at their company. Um, now, again, that worked really well for them. That was really important to them. All companies, follow, a lot of companies followed suit at that point. And, you know, if you look at the computer science degrees, though, only 20% of computer science degrees are earned by women. And so you suddenly dried up the pool of people who were entering. At the same time, what happened was women who didn't have computer science degrees couldn't get their next job. I myself went to Facebook as a product marketer, not in product management because of that. And, you know, many women um, we found had to take a different role and re-enter a different field in order to stay in tech. And one of the things we advocate for is, you know, are the best product leaders all have computer science degrees? And the answer is no. Actually, at Facebook, we realized that three of the most successful product leaders were women who didn't have computer science degrees, which meant you know there was some there was a flaw in the system, and and we eventually went on to lead our own our own both our product and engineering teams. And so one of the things we advocate for is actually bringing more diversity to the table. How do we bring more women and minorities, people who are underrepresented, to the to the table so that we can build better products that are for everyone? 
That's fascinating about that change with computer science, because I certainly know people who don't have computer science degrees who are excellent product managers. And does Google still have that policy? No, no. They dropped that policy many years later, um, but it was several years ago. And I think that that's helped them actually bring on new talent as well, which is incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those rules, Deb, right? Where it's like, it's a good idea if you, but we love to hear great exceptions. Yes. Right? But I think that there's, the rule made sense for them, but now, you know, very few companies have that requirement right. and they still have incredible product teams. And some of the best product leaders I know don't have a computer science degree. And so not only making that an exception, but saying we want voices from, you know, some of the best product managers, one product manager is like for, had a, you know, political science major. And so, you know, it's, I think that having that diversity of points of view actually makes it us stronger as product, you know, organizations. I guess you could argue that Steve Jobs was a product manager and he studied calligraphy. That's right. So, <laughs> right. So um, final question, Deb, you still have so many more years to go in your career, but I'm wondering if you've given any thought in terms of how you want people to see the work that you've done already, and maybe in terms of the future as well. Well, you know, as I write in the book, um, you know, the last chapter is called Making Your Mark, which is what is a legacy you want to leave, right? When I first got to business school, they asked us to write our obituaries at the very start of school. And of course, you know, we were 20 somethings and, you know, we laughed about it, we wrote it and we joked about it. And then when we hit our 15th reunion, two people had passed away. And so, you know, I think the question we should ask ourselves is what are we leaving the world better than we we found it? You know, every interaction, every moment, are we, you know, helping or are we hurting? Are we creating good or are we creating hurt? And, you know, I think that that's how I really want to look at the world, which is, you know, each day you have the opportunity, you meet, you make, you know, thousands of decisions. You probably meet several dozen people over email or chat, or, you know, you're touching all of these people's lives. Are you making it slightly better? Or are you making things worse? And I just hope that people will say, you know, every opportunity she got, she left, she left everything better than she found it. And whether it's a relationship, whether it's, you know, the, you know, whether it's just a communication. And so I do think that that's what I hope for and how I live my life for you. Deborah Liu, CEO of Ancestry.com and also author of the new book, Take Back Your Power, 10 New Rules for Women at Work. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Sirwer.